Well, good morning. Uh, thank you so much for those prayers. Uh, my family and I certainly covet your prayers. And uh, once again, I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, man, we love you. I love you. I love our church. I'm so thankful for you. Um, one of the things I was talking to one of the guys about a week or two ago is, for me personally, the amount of layers of relationship in this church, uh, particularly just our congregation and the history of our congregation. And so um, I became a Christian within our congregation when I was 21. And, uh, and so this has been my, my home church to the max. Never set foot in a church, never heard the gospel before. Uh, and then I was 21, uh, just satisfying, thanks for this, Izzy, uh, satisfying a friend's request to come visit his church. And I said I would go if he would shut up. And, uh, and, and, and he did because I kept coming. And, um, and so the Lord saved me at 21. And so I say that because many of you who are in the crowd discipled me and, uh, and, 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 and have helped mature me in my walk with Christ. And so um, you have seen me, many of you, from a, from a 21-year-old kid to this young 35-year-old pastor. <laughs> anyway, let's keep going. All right, here we go. So we're going to find, but, but thank you, really. Uh, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to look at a large section of Scripture. We're going to go from verses 17. I think on the notes and on the screen, we, we cut it off at 30, but we're going to go to about 33 34. So it's a good thing that you have your Bibles. Go ahead and open that up or load your Bibles. Um, I don't really have anything extra to add to those announcements by Eric. Uh, so I just want to dive right into our time once again, because we have such a large section of scripture to cover today. Um, so many of you know, some of you don't. And, and real quick, actually, before we start, I do have one thing. If you're new to Storehouse, if you're visiting, if you're checking us out, if you're listening online, we'd love to connect with you. And so if you're here present and if you're new, you're a visitor, we have this connect desk over here, fill out a card. We'd love to hang out with you. If you're listening online, fill out a digital connect card. With that being said, um, many of you know, some of you don't. So I grew up in a family where I was one of four boys. Okay. Uh, I am what my mom calls the blessing, right? So my eldest brother was born in 71, then the next one in 73, then the next one in 74, and then 1985, right? I was the blessing, as my mom calls it. Now, with this being said, growing up in a household full of brothers and a lot of my cousins hung out with us all the time, uh, my mom would cook these family-sized and style meals where it was just kind of like these big platters and you'd kind of just come and eat as you go. And for the most part, leftovers were never a concept in our, in our, in our home growing up. Uh, I, I'm, I was reminded as I was thinking about this, I was reminded uh, about this, this movie, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called The Incredibles, and, and there is this one little clip in, in The Incredibles, and I don't know all their character names, uh, but there's this one clip in the movie where they're all having a family dinner. And uh, the daughter, I think her name is Violet, she's, she's, uh, she's not really interested in the meatloaf. 
And her mom uh, goes on to say, well, it's Thursday night, which is leftover night. What would you like? And she goes on to explain or suggest several dishes that we have steak and we have this, that, and the other. That sounded in that clip like a very normal family dinner conversation. Like, let me give you options for what else we have in the fridge. That did not exist in my house growing up because that's dumb, right? Like, we would eat all of it. And as I grew up uh, and I jumped into sports, particularly in competitive weightlifting, I remember having to rush home to make sure I would actually get some food. Otherwise, my brothers would finish everything that my mom cooked because we didn't have a, a set dinner time, right? Like one of the things my family and I do now is a couple nights a week, we have dinner together where we sit down and talk about our day and what's going on and all that fun stuff, that did not exist growing up. We didn't have a, a set time, so you had to be there when it got there, right? But the good news about this, kind of, I think, was uh, my mom uh, taught my brothers and I at a very young age how to cook. And she taught us how to cook so that we would help with uh, cooking, help with other chores. But in addition to that, like once the food was gone and if you were still hungry, it meant that you were going to cook something for yourself, like you're on your own. And so my mom taught us how to cook. Um, all that to say, you're kind of wondering, like, where am I headed with all of this, right? All of that to say, a similar illustration or that illustration itself, for many, the Lord's Supper, communion, is something like that for you. Christians will come forward to the communion table for all sorts of wacky reasons. Some Christians will come to the table because they want to get the freshest bread and the freshest wine and the freshest juice. Some Christians will come to the table because they want to make sure they get bread and wine or juice, and then they'll pray after some want to come to the table because what's on their mind is the lunch appointment that they have with that family that they don't want to miss. And so if they get to the communion table fast enough, they can leave service early enough and make sure that they make it on time beating traffic. Some will come to the table simply because they want to make sure they just get some bread and some wine. And the truth is that the Lord's Supper or the communion table is not like what my brothers and I experienced growing up, where it's, you know, uh, first come, first serve. You've got to make sure you get it, and you've got to make sure you rush through it, and every once in a while, there's going to be a fight. That's not what the Lord's Supper is. As much laughter as I can recount in growing up with my brothers now, when it comes to eating, as I compare that or as I use that to reference to the communion table, these are two completely different meals. You see, the difference between rushing to eat all of the things and participating in the Lord's Supper is that this meal that we share as a church family is one where if you have not examined the condition of your heart, there are consequences. Just like the food that my brothers and I ate and devoured and how they nourished our muscles and our bodies, the food in communion that represents the body and blood of our Lord Jesus nourishes our souls. 
Throughout this series, we have looked at a variety of elements in our Sunday liturgy and how we are shaped by them. So five weeks ago, we began with the Sunday gathering itself, and then we transitioned into the preached word and then singing, and then Nathaniel preached on confession and repentance last week. Today, we're going to close this series with the Lord's Supper. And just like every Sunday, I want to pose the question, why does this matter? That's been the question that I have asked you every single week, that when it came to the gathering or singing or confession, why does it matter? We decided to preach through this topical series because we believe that it is important to reclaim the importance or the significance of the Sunday gathering. Five weeks ago, I gave you this thesis, this overview of why we are doing this five-week series on, sun, on the Sunday liturgy. And the, and the thesis went something like this, that the Sunday gathering matters because it is God's work marked by, or the fruit of God's work marked by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we gather, yes, to worship Jesus, particularly because he is risen from the dead and he ascended back into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will one day return to reclaim his bride. We worship on Sunday, yes, as a response, but a response to what? A response to the fact that we are no longer dead in our sin. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the linchpin to the Sunday gathering is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, our faith, our worship is in vain. It's important for us to reclaim the Sunday gathering because of so many obstacles that we seem to be faced with today, particularly within the church herself. On one hand, you have Christians who love the various ministerial options that come with the Sunday morning gathering, the fresh coffee that we don't have, the kids ministry that isn't meeting right now. All of those things are on pause or are not happening. And so what is left are the core elements of the Sunday gathering and the priority of Christians discipling one another. On the other hand, we have Christians who hold fast and cling to the, the eloquence of our Constitution, and they would even say that that's one of the reasons upon which we gather, and they cling to the eloquence of our Constitution more than the Word of God. Where many can tell us with joy and gladness all the various rights that we have as American citizens. But when it comes to helping me understand Galatians 2.20, that, that I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live now in the flesh, I live through faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. When I ask the question, help me understand that, I get blank stares by my brothers and sisters. I get blank stares when I ask, what is the gospel? Everybody tenses up. 
in the midst of all of that, the question still stands, why does this meal matter? Here's the main idea of our time. The Lord's Supper matters because it is more than a memory. It is more than a memory. It is the recognition that the sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood on the cross is the only atonement for sin. The Lord's Supper matters because it's more than a memory. It is the recognition that Jesus' sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross is the only atonement for sin. And so this morning, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11 to see what Paul has to tell us. Now, with that statement, with that main idea, many of you even here would say, yes, I agree with that. I even heard some amens. I would agree with that. But here's the thing. Depending on how you approach the Lord's Supper says a lot about what you believe about Jesus' work done on the cross for you and says a lot about what you believe about your brothers and sisters. Everything hangs on that resurrection. So, I want us to consider what God says through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. As I mentioned, this is a large section of Scripture. I'm going to read all of it because it's good for us. I'm going to read all of it, and then when we begin to walk through it, I'll break it down into smaller chunks. So let me read, and then I'll pray. Once again, if you just joined us, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to go verses 17 through about 33. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when, he give, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let me pray. Holy God, we begin this time by thanking you for this morning. Gathering this morning is a gift of your grace and mercy. Father, we come before you after having uh, a long week that contains a mix of encouragement, doubt, discouragement, laughter, uncertainty, and stress. And so we ask that by your Spirit, you would meet us where we are. Father, as we turn to your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our understanding of the person and work of Jesus, that we would be conformed into his image, and that we would walk in a newness of life. Father, set me aside, and may it be your Holy Spirit speaking, present, and at work in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters. I pray that those who know you would know you better this morning and that those who don't know you would come to know you today. We ask this all in the beauty of Christ's name. Amen. So before we dive into the text, I want to drink coffee. Uh, Before we dive into the text, I think it is important to have a brief moment of teaching when it comes to a couple of distinctions. Uh, What I'd like to do briefly is teach on some points of theological clarity when it comes to the difference between the Roman Catholic Church Church and faith uh, and, and Protestants. And then I'd like to teach briefly on theological charity when it comes to uh, other denominations within uh, Protestants. The reason I'd like to do this is because, uh, for several reasons actually, Uh, the first one is because of the neighborhood that we find ourselves in, right? The neighborhood that we find ourselves in is predominantly uh, Roman Catholic, whether it would be individuals who are invested in the Roman Catholic Church or simply individuals who grew up indoctrinated as Catholic and they would be considered culturally Catholic. Uh, Additionally, uh, Our Lady of Sorrows is, is like four blocks from this building. Um, And at the same time, many of you came from the Roman Catholic Church and tradition. And so I thought it would be important that as we talk about the Lord's Supper, we would make some distinctions, right? Um, So with this being said, this is a general overview of some theological distinctions. If you want to talk more, we can go out for coffee later and we, you can tell me all the things. And, uh, and if you need resources, I'd love to help, right? Now, with that being said, beginning with the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church and tradition has, has a different position on the Lord's Supper than, than Protestants. While there are a few areas in which we would agree with them, this is not one of them. The Roman Catholic Church uh, subscribes to a belief or a position, however you want to call it, called transubstantiation. Yeah, 
right? Somebody studied for that, right? So it is called transubstantiation. Now, here's what it teaches. Transubstantiation teaches that the outward appearance of the bread and the wine remain unchanged, but their inner essence changes or transforms. With that being said, I'm going to read you part of their contemporary catechism of the Catholic Church that affirms this position or belief. It writes, or it says, By the consecration, the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself living and glorious, is present in a true, real, and substantial manner. His body and his blood with his soul and his divinity, end quote. Okay? In short, the, the position of transubstantiation teaches that the bread and the wine are not merely representations of the body and blood of Christ, but that they actually become the physical presence of Christ and his, of Christ's body and of his blood. Now, with that being said, here's some, we're going to poke some holes in this, right? Uh, here are some of the concerns with the position of transubstantiation. Number one, probably the most important, it's not taught in the Bible. It's kind of important. Right? We don't see it in Scripture. In addition to that, transubstantiation tends to have this uh, mixture or culmination of a couple of things in Scripture mixed with Greco-Roman philosophical ideology. And you put it together and we come out with transubstantiation because it is heavily informed by the philosophers of the early church. Uh, another problem or concern is that um, <clears throat> because the position of, of transubstantiation teaches that the bread and the wine become the literal, physical body and blood of Christ, the individual who comes forward, they would say, uh, uh, receive, not necessarily receives, but grace is transmitted to that individual. In other words, if an individual who does not know the Lord comes forward to receive uh, communion, grace is transmitted to them, and they are then regenerated in that moment. There's no faith and repentance present in that moment. They're just coming forward with an unrepentant heart, and they would say, well, grace is transmitted uh, through transubstantiation. Further, um, in the position of transubstantiation, they would argue that Part of the reason that grace is transmitted to the individual is because the bread and the wine are the physical presence of Christ. Therefore, it is a, how would you say it? Uh, it is a, I'm just, I just blanked out. It's, it's a re-sacrifice. I know, it's kind of weird. Anyway, in other words, they would say that the bread and the wine actually host Christ. Therefore, this is we are sacrificing Christ again, here and now, for that individual. Now, the problem with that is somewhere in the Bible, John 19, Jesus says it is finished. So there is no re-sacrifice. There is no hosting of a what they would call sacrificial victim. And so it is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. 
And so with that being said, we would not agree with them here, and we would not affirm transubstantiation. So with that being said, we dive into the Protestant tradition and, and some of the theological charities that, that many Christians have when it comes to the Lord's Supper. For instance, several denominations have several views on the Lord's Supper. There are some who are not exactly Roman Catholic, uh, but they would subscribe to a similar position and say it kind of is the presence of uh, the body of, and blood of Christ, but it isn't. But it is. But it isn't. They would subscribe to a, a position similar to that. Others would say, well, no, 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 this is actually just a memorial. All we're doing is just remembering what Christ has done for us. Nothing else is necessarily happening when we participate in the Lord's Supper. And then finally, there are those who believe that the Lord's Supper is, is more than a memorial. They would say that uh, the presence of Christ is here, but it is among his church through the power of the Holy Spirit. The reformer John Calvin would say it this way. For the way in which he, that is Jesus, imparts himself to us is by the secret power of the Holy Spirit. A power which is able not only to bring together, but also to join together things which are separated by distance and by a great distance as that. We believe that the Lord's Supper is not only a sacrament that Christ left the church, but that the bread and wine represent, it is not the physical essence, they represent the body and blood of Christ serving, check it, Serving as a truth we can touch. Some of you have had really hard weeks. Some of you have struggled this week to cling to the promises of God. Some of you have asked, when, Lord? Communion, the Lord's Supper, serves not just as a memory, but a reminder that Christ is for you, present tense. That he is your friend, present tense. That he is your Savior, present tense. It is a truth you can touch. It is a grace that you will participate in because of what Christ has done for you. It is more than a memorial service. It is that Christ is present through the power of his Holy Spirit among his church. In short, this brief overview of theological clarity and theological charity was just to provide you with some distinctions. Now, Let's get to 1 Corinthians 11, okay? In 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to give you a little bit of a context, but I want to walk through, because it's such a big piece of scripture, I want to walk through three main sections. Uh, and here, here's what they are. They're on the notes in case you're, you're looking, but here are the three main sections. We're going to look at how to improperly, right, observe or participate in the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at what the Lord's Supper actually is. And then we're going to look at how to properly observe the Lord's Supper. So with that being said, we're actually going to begin in verse 17. Now, here's the context, right? The church in Corinth, if you haven't read 1 Corinthians or if you don't know much about the Corinthian church, they were kind of like a Jerry Springer show, okay? They were kind of like a Jerry Springer show where Christians went wild. Okay? Like that's kind of the overview of uh, the Corinthian church. And throughout the entire letter, the Apostle Paul is 
correcting them and providing them with exhortation uh, because of their abuse towards uh, the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit, for instance, uh, because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. We're going to see right now that people were coming forward to receive communion and getting drunk at the communion table. Uh, he uh, rebukes them in terms of their, their walk with Christ and the inconsistency with what Scripture says. And, you know, even in the areas where we see Paul say some encouragement, things, uh, he still doesn't hold back from telling them that they're wrong in their understanding of many things, communion in particular. And so in verse 17, he kind of sets the tone and the stage. He opens up verse 17 by saying, in the following instructions, in other words, I'm going to talk to you about the Lord's Supper. I want to have a conversation about some things. The Lord's Supper in particular, uh, I do not commend you. He opens up by saying, I do not commend you. In other words, their means of participating in the Lord's Supper has been terrible and unbiblical. Some of the things that are occurring in, in, in this first part of Scripture, some of the things that are occurring is that people in the church, so Christians, are rushing to the table to make sure that they eat the bread and drink the wine. Right? They're rushing to the table to get theirs. What we see is as they're rushing to the table, they are getting drunk at the table, especially when the bread has been eaten and there is no more bread. They go to the, to the wine and they get drunk off of the wine. And in addition to that, as they are rushing to the table and getting drunk, they are belittling and setting aside other brothers and sisters because of their socioeconomic status. So those who are rushing to the table are Christians who uh, in society would be of an upper class and they feel like the bread and the wine is primarily for them and that those who are in the lower class or a different socioeconomic status don't necessarily need to receive the first fruits of communion. And so Paul comes to the Corinthian church and is beginning to uh, rebuke them in what they do and or in how they observe communion. And so when it comes to improperly observing communion, I want to look at three things. These are three ways to which to, to do communion improperly. The first one is in verse 18, division. Here's what Paul says. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, so they are actually gathered together. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Once again, what's going on is that the church, as they are gathering, is divided because of status and class. Now, you and I would look through 1 Corinthians 11 and say, man, that's terrible. People taking advantage of the Lord's Supper and belittling other individuals who can't necessarily get there and, and getting abused in all sorts of ways. You and I would say, man, that's terrible. But is it really that much different today? Are we immune to division even within the church? Like right now. I don't want you to think about people who aren't here. I want you to think about us here. 
Are we really immune when today we are so divided because of political affiliation, discipleship methods, and even social issues, things that are good and important, but divisive in their motivation as we present them before the church? We are not immune to these divisions that are currently and presently in our church. You see, when we come together for the Lord's Supper, we are having an improper understanding of what we're doing. And most of the time, many Christians, and this may be you, you simply follow suit because it's the next part of service, and it means that lunch is just an hour away. What you and I don't even recognize is that we are participating in the Lord's Supper with division within our own body. You may not be uh, uh, dismissed or belittled because of your socioeconomic status, but perhaps you do dismiss others because they think differently, differently than you politically. Perhaps you dismiss others because someone sinned against you and you just haven't reconciled with that person. Or you were the one that sinned against them and you're so just in what you did and why you did it and rather than reconcile, you breed division among the people of God. So the first way in which we observe or participate in the Lord's Supper improperly is with division. The second way is that we participate in the Lord's Supper selfishly, verses 21 and 22. Here's what Paul says. <clears throat> For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Here's what's going on. Because they are rushing to the table and eating all of the bread and drinking all of the wine, Paul is saying, why are you binging at the Lord's Supper? If you want to binge, go binge at home. You have a misunderstanding of what we are doing here. Therefore, your motivation is selfish. Your motivation is full of arrogance. You want to get full, go to the restaurant. You want to get full, go home. You want to get full, eat before you come. This is not the place where we rush and eat all of the bread and the wine because I just want to get mine. When division comes, selfish motivation follows. The intention and condition of our hearts not only has consequences, but it reflects how we view the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us and what we think of our brothers and sisters. Over the course of this series, as we have looked at a variety of elements like the preached word and the gathering and singing and confession, each one surely addresses the individual, but the idea of each part of our liturgy is that God is pouring out his grace onto you, his church, so that that grace that we receive would then be poured out to one another. And we forfeit that. We forfeit that grace and that sanctification when we approach the Lord's Supper selfishly. Last way, unrepentant. 
unrepentant. Verses 27 and then 29 through 30. Paul writes, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why you are weak and ill and some have died. Division and selfish arrogance, listen to me, are marks of an unrepentant heart. Division and arrogance are marks of an unrepentant heart. You see, if we participate in the Lord's Supper uh, immaturely and without a proper understanding, what that says is that we're thinking about ourselves that we're thinking only about our schedule, that we're thinking only about our affiliations, and that you forget that all who come to the table are sinners. That all who come to the table have been leveled because there's nothing that we have contributed to our salvation but our sin and corruption. When we come before the Lord's Supper with an unrepentant heart, one that is far from God, one that is distant from God in our pride, we bring judgment on ourselves and we bring reproach to the gospel. Some people will come to the Lord's Supper, to the communion table, just so, with an unrepentant heart, just so other brothers and sisters wouldn't come up to them and ask, hey, why didn't you go get communion? That is a spiritual pride on your behalf if you do that. You are bringing judgment upon your hands. In addition to that, when a brother or sister comes to you and says, I noticed that you didn't take communion today. How are you doing? That's literally what they're supposed to do. Like they're following through with uh, the grace in them and at work through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like they are doing what Christians are supposed to do and we reject them because of our spiritual pride. And then oftentimes we wonder, well, nobody's really talking to me. I feel alone. Oftentimes we feel alone because we're rejecting individuals. When we come forward to the communion table, we are coming forward as broken sinners. I want to talk about that more in a little bit. The Lord's Supper is more than a memory of what Christ has done. It is a recognition that it is only through his sacrifice on the cross that our debt, our debt has been paid. His life at the cross, his life accounts for our righteousness. At the cross, his death accounts for our freedom from sin. So when we come forward to the Lord's Supper, we come forward broken and humble. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Let's look at 
what the Lord's Supper actually is. This is verses 23 to 25. Here's what Paul writes. And I'll go verse by verse. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. Okay, stop right there. What is the Lord's Supper actually? The first thing that I want to share is that it's a means of grace. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. One of the ways in which it is a means of grace is that it is a tradition that has been passed down. Check it. Not even from Paul. Not just the apostles. It is a tradition that was passed down and instituted by the Lord Jesus himself. When Paul is telling them, and he recounts the night that Jesus was betrayed, and he writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He's not saying, hey, this Lord's Supper thing, I'm going to go ahead and get it started. This is the ministry of communion, and so I want you guys to get it going, get some volunteers. No, what Paul is saying is that the Lord's Supper, this sacrament that the church was given by Christ, was performed and instituted by Christ himself. The Lord's Supper connects us to the historical church, to men and women who have participated in this sacrament for centuries because of what Jesus has done for them. Broken and redeemed sinners have come to the table to receive a grace that is a gift for them, a reminder of what Jesus has done for them specifically, just like you do for centuries. Knowing our frailty, the meal demonstrates God's grace for us in Christ. It is a means of grace. Number two, or this is actually still with under means of grace, another way in which it is a means of grace is that this is a meal that must be guarded and protected. I'm going to be very brief on this. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more. Paul continues, Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, remember that word. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus talking, or Paul reminding them that this is the night that not only Jesus instituted the, the Lord's Supper, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. That's significant for you and me. It's significant because <clears throat> the night that he was betrayed teaches us something about how we ought to guard the Lord's table. That this sacrament will always be under attack. The Corinthian church was under attack within the, the, the sacrament. They were getting drunk. They were pushing people aside. They were uh, enacting this selfishly with division and unrepentant hearts. If this is such a big deal because this was a sacrament or an ordinance given to the church by Christ himself, then this has to be, must be guarded. It must be protected. Part of my job as your pastor is to guard this table. One of the ways in which it is also spoken of is 
fencing the table. Although all are welcomed, it is not for everyone. And more, we'll talk more about that in a minute. And finally, another way in which it is a means of grace is the significance of Christ's body and blood. Once again, the significance of the bread and wine are a demonstration of God's grace for us in Christ. There, listen to me. If you are in Christ, by His wounds, you have been healed. You have been healed. Who is this for? This is for the weary sinner. This is, this is not just a grace. This is a truth you can touch. It's for the one who's, who's overwhelmed and can't really see if God is at work in them. It's for the one who's had a stressful week. It's for the one who is weak in their faith. And they just, man, if the Lord Jesus would just show me something, here it is. Here it is. This is for the weary and redeemed sinner. Here, we're not just reminded of what Jesus has done for us. Here, we are reminded of who Jesus is to us right now. Present tense. That when you come to receive uh, communion, you remember and are assured that Jesus is your Savior. That you have been bought with a price by his blood and that you belong to him. You have been redeemed and he is your Savior. When you come forward, you remember that Jesus is your friend that he will not reject you. In fact, in the times that you think all of your friends are going to reject you, and sometimes they do, Jesus' faithful presence remains with you. When you come forward, you are reminded not only of what Jesus has done for you, but you remember that Jesus right now, right now, today, is your intercessor. That is, that he is going to bat for you before the Father right now, praying for you. That's happening right now. When you, when you come forward to receive communion, you don't just remember what Jesus has done for you. You remember that right now, Jesus is your advocate. That's a, that's a legal term. That means that he is the one that represents you. That he is the one who steps in when it's those really dark, gross, ugly sins, not just our daily fallings. I'm talking about those dark sins that you don't really want to tell anybody about or when you are just failing constantly, that time where you were just broken by your sin. He steps in as your advocate to the Father. John says this in 1 John 2.1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Those truths are for you right now. And so when you feel weak, when you feel like, man, I've just, I've, I've jacked it up and I've dropped the ball every single day this week, the Lord's Supper is that reminder of grace for you in Christ. It's not a do-over. It's a reminder of who you are right now and who he is for you right now. Number two, the Lord's Supper is a, is a grace we participate in. Every redeemed sinner is welcome. 
every redeemed sinner is welcome to the table. This meal is specifically for the one who has placed their trust in the Lord Jesus, the one who has repented of their sins. Listen to me. If, if that's not you yet, and we're praying that the Lord would redeem you, but if that's not you yet, then refrain from coming forward. This isn't just a tradition because this is tradition. This was something that was instituted by the Lord Jesus himself. In that same vein, a little bit of teaching. Parents, as much as you learn about the Lord's table this morning, you are the ones. We've been ta- talking a great deal about family discipleship over the last six months. You know, like, I just don't really know when to disciple my kids. Right here, right? The Lord's Supper is when you will disciple your children. Many parents, and I don't know if it's a valley thing, Right? Many parents will come up to the Lord's Supper. They'll come up to receive communion and they will get the bread and they'll say, oh, can I have one for my, for my son or my daughter? That's not the way it works. So when your child who does not know the Lord yet asks, mom, dad, you got some bread? You got some wine? What's up with that? That's when you disciple them. That's when you tell them, Week in and week out. Because we do this, and we're going to be doing this every week. So no te hagas. Don't tell me you don't have room for discipleship. Don't tell me you don't know how to have these gospel conversations with your kiddos. You're going to have them at least every Sunday. No te hagas. Well, you know, you should probably talk to Pastor Marco. No, no, no. In 1 Corinthians, right, when it comes to, uh, let me talk to husbands real quick. In 1 Corinthians, when it comes to uh, wives and children, what does Paul say? If you have a question, go to your husband. So husbands, men, you best have your Bibles open. Don't say, oh, go to Pastor Mark. My kid, no, it's yours. I have one. He's my responsibility. And so your job is to disciple your children. And so don't tell me you don't have opportunities. Sorry, I went on a rant, but I mean it. Anyway, (laughs) it's Pastor Appreciation Month. (laughs) Love you too, dude. Here we go. Where was I? All right. This is for every redeemed sinner. This is an opportunity to disciple your family. This meal is specific for the one who has placed their trust in the Lord and repented of their sins. This is a meal where we are reminded of God's work for us in Christ, God's pursuit of us in adoption, and the Spirit's grace in us. Number three, or actually, no, keep on saying that. Keep, no, I still got more reasons. Anyway, it's a grace we participate, participate in because every redeemed sinner is welcome. It's a grace we participate in because it brings unity in the church. The meal brings unity in the church because we are all leveled. Each one of us is coming here as a sinner, not better than the other. You know what separates the Christian from the non-Christian? Repentance. That's it. That's it. The Christian isn't better. The Christian is repentant. And if you assume the position of being better, then you're no different than the Corinthians. What did we achieve when we come forward? 
What did we contribute but our sin? Yet God in His grace and mercy has called us to Himself through Christ, and it's a grace that we participate in together. It is a meal that we as a church family get to have with one another. It is one of the most beautiful representations of fellowship. Finally, this is the actual number three. What is it actually? It is a grace that we can witness. The Lord's Supper helps to shape us in how we view one another and how we view others. What does that look like toward one another? We've been talking about this for the past four weeks, that as God pours out his grace onto you and we receive that grace on Sunday morning, we pour that grace out onto one another. So when we have a time for communion, it is still part edifying of the church. When you see that brother or their sister just wrestling with some of their failures from their week or just wrestling because they've had a hard week or they're discouraged, man, and you feel encouraged by God's grace, your job is to come alongside them. Well, what does it look like with non-Christians? Man, it is a meal. If you think about it, check it. Jesus loves meals and so does the valley, right? That's probably why we're the most biblical area ever. I say that because it's about more or less 30% of Jesus's ministry was spent going to, coming from, or at a meal. And everybody here loves to sit at a table. So how, how does this shape you when you leave this building? You best be having family meals. You should be inviting people into your house, consciously, but you should be inviting people <laughs> into your house and sharing a meal with them so that they would only, not only see you uh, uh, serve them in the name of Jesus in terms of your works, but also in your word. See, because some of you will hear that, right? I can invite someone over to my house, right? Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And the guy's like, you're going to talk about Jesus and you're going to love them because hospitality, inviting someone over to your house is super vulnerable. They're going to see all your dishes, and how you don't put things away, and like things that should be in a certain place aren't. It's a very vulnerable place. But it's real. That's good. So, finally, how do we properly observe the, the Lord's Supper? We have talked at length at how to not do it. We have talked at length in what this actually is. And now let's look at how do you not do it? Or excuse me, how do you do it properly? How do you observe the Lord's Supper properly? Number one, Examine yourself. Verse 28. Here's what Paul says. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Before you come to the table, you better make it a priority to examine yourself. Paul says it this way also to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 13, he writes, examine yourselves, check it, to see whether you are in the faith. Put all of your cards on the table. When we transition into this meal, there's going to be some time for you to simply pray and reflect. Put all of your cards on the table. Confess your sins before the Lord. Be specific about those sins. Don't just be like, Lord, I have failed and I have sinned. What would you do? Put it on the table. Go and speak with a brother or sister if necessary. Be reconciled to one another. 
the first thing that we do is that we examine ourselves. And once we examine ourselves, we repent. We turn away from our sins. We find ourselves reconciled to one another, restored to the Lord. Nathaniel said this in his sermon last week on confession and repentance, that they must be accompanied with a godly grief or sorrow. Christian, do you hate sin that it grieves you? Or do you make sin normative? that you are unbothered by it, unmoved by it. And the only time you actually talk about sin is when you say, I mean, I'm not perfect. I mean, I could do better. Or you go to extremes and say, at least I'm not like Hitler, because that's apparently like the epitome of evil, right? Do you hate sin that it grieves you, or are you unbothered by it? The Lord's Supper is more than a memory. We need to have a deep understanding of the Lord's Supper. When we look at the bread, we say, right, yeah, that's Christ's body broken for us. And by his wounds, you have been sealed. I told you to remember the word cup. Throughout the Bible, when you hear of the cup, it usually uh, is referencing or connotating a violent act that's about to happen. And so Jesus says, drink of this cup, which is my blood. Well, what happened? He was falsely accused. He was arrested. His beard was plucked. He was beaten. He was whipped. He had to carry his cross. And then he was crucified. He was stabbed in the side and then affirmed that he was dead. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right, when Jesus is just under a lot of pressure, he sweats blood. And what is the thing that he tells the Father? If you would remove this what? Cup but not my will, your will be done. So when you receive the, the elements of the wine or the juice, you know the price that was paid. Don't overlook this time. Everyone always wants time. Man, I just want more time for this. I want more time for that. You got it. By God's grace and providence, he is providing you and me with time today. So, Christian, what sin are you leaving unchecked? What excuses are you making for yourself rather than coming before the Lord? What is your heart towards your brothers and sisters today? What idols are you clinging to this morning? It is in those places that I want you to dwell for a few moments. And then my desire is that you would repent of your arrogance, your selfishness, that you would repent of your pride. And for you, the one who is weary, that you would just fall before your knees and cry out to the Lord, that you would turn to the Lord, pray that you are awakened by his word. And if you're not a Christian, I'm super thankful that you're here. And if you're listening online, thank you for being here. You can come to know Jesus today. You can surrender your life to his invitation to you by his work on the cross. Confess and repent of your sins. Turn and trust 
in the Lord Jesus and join his church in this meal this morning. The Lord's Supper is more than a memory. It is the recognition that Christ's sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross is the only atonement for sin. Let's pray.